Chickadee Prince Books is the home of great fiction and nonfiction of all genres. Visit us at chickadeeprince.com. That's Chickadee the Bird, Prince the Son of a King. Declare your independence. My name is Watt O'Hugh. In 1874, I traveled to New York City at the behest of J.P. Morgan, supposedly to make my name in a Wild West extravaganza that Morgan would finance, with beautiful sharpshooter Emelina by my side. I soon found myself locked up in Wyoming for a passion crime that I didn't commit, then swept up in a prison break and fleeing for my life across the West. Haunted, as always by my ghosts and by my memories of my love, Lucy Billings. Who was ultimately behind my troubles? A criminal named Alan Jerome, a shadowy financier who lived in a supposed utopia known as Sidonia, and his colleague Daryl Fawley, a pompous Englishman whom Lucy married after she and I lost each other back in the 1860s. How I hated them, how I hate them still all these years later, as I look back on my life. I have my ghosts. In a way, I am a ghost myself. The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Watto Hugh, a radio drama based on the novels by Stephen S. Drachman, starring Sal Rendino and produced by Danielle Wu. This week, Episode 8, Sidonia. In one narrow and green Montana valley, which a 19th century adventurer might reach only by traversing a seemingly endless row of mountain ranges, lay the flush little town known as Sidonia, which was then, as now, hidden in myth and legend. In the center of the little town, one sunny but chilly day in 1875, a small boy no older than five ran joyously up Main Street, paved and smooth, chasing a crowd of Sidonians past the three-story apartment buildings of polished stone and the exotic, fully stocked shops that lined the tree-shrouded thoroughfare. He was alone, his mother, dead, back in those terrible, barely-remembered days before his father had moved to Sidonia. The boy's father, also absent today, was engaged in important military maneuvers as one of the armed sentries who sat on the mountain peaks above the Golden City, vigorously watching the isolated landscape for U.S. cavalry come to destroy the Sidonians' perfect lives. The occasion was this year's Sidonia Day Parade. The formerly destitute, gold miners, rag pickers, tenant farmers, drunken cowboys, aging streetwalkers made up the bulk of the celebrants. But the Sidonian citizenry also included the cream of American society, the idle, frightened children of old wealth families, and even the occasional lonely Wall Street titan. 
they mixed freely on Main Street. Trumpets and bugles blared from behind the Folly Palace. The little boy leapt into the air to catch a glimpse of the festivities on the palace's greens, where Daryl Folly stood, and behind him, the shadowy Alan Jerome. Folly was the more gregarious, and, in the boy's opinion at least, the more beloved of the two. Even now, on this solemn occasion, he stood about telling amusing anecdotes and doing his best to charm his subjects. Alan Jerome, who stood silently with a thinly disguised scowl on his gaunt face, was lanky and ragged, his features unthreatening and unremarkable, in spite of the gloomy disposition he sought to communicate. And in both manner and appearance, he made a startling contrast to the cordial folly. He was forty years old, with a slight loss of his light brown hair at the very top of his forehead, piercing blue eyes and a rare laugh when he was not sunk in self-defeating rumination and the endless strategizing that had burdened him since his childhood. I visited Sidonia some time later, in heavy disguise. It's hard even to describe a place that, by any reckoning, was so impossible. It was impossible to have hauled over the Wyoming and Montana ranges the supplies needed to construct Sidonia in this particularly isolated valley, and it was equally impossible to keep the remote town supplied. Yet here it was. Sedonia itself grew more labyrinthine by the day, or perhaps by the moment, based on nothing more than the individual whim of each increasingly pampered Sidonian. Any trinket, any fondly remembered memento of childhood could be found in a local shop. Any production would eventually perform beneath the Sidonia Theater's velvet curtains. Any food from any country could be sampled under the crystal chandeliers of a local bistro, usually found on a side street upon which the surprised Sidonian had never before stumbled and would never find again. In spite of the fact that pilgrims chasing a myth arrived daily, and in further spite of the fact that no construction crews were ever spotted sweaty in the hot midday sun, there was never a shortage of housing. Homes, shops, and entertainments that ceased to charm or amuse simply ceased to exist. The town, like a living, breathing god, and Folly and Jerome in their roles as Sidonia's chief priest and minister, provided the grateful residents with all they might require. What church, what government had ever provided them more than the empty promise of some far future paradise, if that? At the very end of Main Street, carved into the side of a mountain that glinted a blinding gold in the noonday sun, sat the palace where resided Daryl Fawley and, in a distant western wing, Alan Jerome. On that day, the annual Sidonia Day Parade, once the festivities were over, I walked through the grand entrance of the palace. I passed masterpieces of every precious era, and some yet to come. Alan Jerome met me in the foyer, unsmiling as always. Daryl Fawley, come, meet our new arrival. A young woman stood beside Alan Jerome, dressed in a yellow spring dress. She was thin and pretty and no older than her very early twenties. With light brown hair tied in a loose bun, 
fair white skin and sad eyes that seemed eager to sparkle. Confused and disoriented, she held on to Jerome's arm as though for support, and without any particular affection. Daryl, this is Miss Amelia Sturgis. Mimi, for short. My friends do call me Mimi. I am Daryl Foley, Miss Sturgis. Follow me, if you would, out of the foyer. Today, we have a garden in the southern wing. I could not take my eyes off Mimi Sturgis. The glow of youthful, misguided optimism on her fine, fragile face. The new life pumping through her body. Miss Sturgis? Yes? I have a question, and it may confuse you at first. Go ahead, Mr. Folly. Are you deceased, Miss Sturgis? I, I believe I am, Mr. Folly. Try to think. I, I remember very little. Just images. I remember warm sun. I, I remember wilting like a Swiss mountain flower in the Mediterranean sun. Oh, that's very silly and melodramatic. I'm sorry. It sounded better in my head. Not at all. Maybe you were a poet in life. At any rate, a girl with strong passions. Is this heaven? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. We've reached the garden. I think you'll both be pleased. The corridor widened and an explosive burst of sunlight struck us like a locomotive. Oh, my goodness. I could not help but smile at the watercolor impossibility that spread out before us. Like a child's finger painting, colors merged into one another, sweeping into an endless horizon. Untamed Hollyhock escaped from the center of the garden and grew wild along the outer edges twisting through wisteria and chrysanthemum beds, wrapped about wild tulips from the African continent that grew amidst wild splashes of dabs of color, gladioluses, geraniums, straw flowers, crepe myrtles, and even some flowers that I had invented just for today's display. Big, knobby, and gaudy flowers. The glass dome showered us in sunlight, and Mimi ran into the garden, bathing in the rays of light, her arms up above her. Good work, Mr. Folly. Very good work. You've outdone yourself on many fronts today. Thank you, Alan. I believe the citizens were pleased by the pageantry. A bit of this and that, some umph. An explosion or two, and they are as happy as ants. Alan, don't fool yourself and think I don't know who this deadling is, even if she herself is oblivious. You are transparent, Alan Jerome. Why is she here? Look at her, Darrell, as she walks sweetly through your garden, touching each plant in confusion getting used to life again. 
I wanted to understand. For what sort of a woman would J.P. Morgan, our great man, risk his fortune and the fortune of the world? I needed to see this. And what do you think? She is remarkable for her unremarkableness. One plus one equals four for our friend Mr. Morgan. Why can't we let him in? Wouldn't he benefit us? No, 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 no. Sidonia will not allow him in. It's not up to me. Look, you know, our agents are penetrating every region of America, looking for strong individuals willing to devote their whole souls to some larger ideal in exchange for our beautiful utopian future. Morgan has come here more than once, you know. The city would not let him in. Sidonia knows. It expelled him like as mush of rotten chime from a fat man's duodenum. Like Mrs. Foley. Just like your wife, Darrow. Alan, you do not need to remind me of Lucy's precarious health. The city of Sidonia does not and cannot take to its heart the sort of independent thinker that Lucy Billings Folly will always be, regardless of her circumstances. She swore allegiance. This is the revolution that she has been waiting for. A revolution for every man, for every woman. Ah, Darrell. Her most heartfelt oaths of fealty could not fool Sidonia. How is she, Darrow? With every new day that passes, Lucy grows weaker. Every day her eyesight dims. By this morning, as the parade began, the city walls had become nothing more than pale shadows to my poor Lucy. And you claim to love her? Still? I do love her, Alan. What will you choose, Darrell? I know what I would choose. But you and I, Darrell, are different men. We are different men. <sighs> it's ironic. You thought she would love you for Sidonia. Instead, she tried to love Sidonia for you and failed. Don't torture me. Look at little Miss Mimi, playing in your garden. Look as she takes one little flower in one little hand. See how sweetly she bends to smell, being so awful careful not to dislodge the bloom, or even to bend a stem ever so slightly. It's terribly peculiar. <laughs> I am a man who has never been in love, evidently. Have you never? Not even a little? You know, I studied mathematics at Harvard. I have a PhD in mathematics. I thought I had loved. My princess was the most brilliant mind on the East Coast. 
She was small, squat, mannish, but in her hands, the laws of quadratic reciprocity took flight to the heavens. Our sentimental ties, I thought, were like a Mobius strip, leading one to another with a certain undeniable linear associative logic. Naturally, there was no logical reason not to love her. So I loved her, as might be expected of me. Irrevocably, I thought, passionately, surely. Oh, Daryl, look at Mimi dancing. Look at her silly dance. She is happy to be alive again, Alan. But you were saying you believed you were in love. Well, yes, but on an unsteady wooden bridge outside of Cambridge, one cold night, in the midst of a romantic midnight stroll, she lost her footing and over she went. I was dressed in my best courtship suit. There was ice in the river, a frigid chill was in the air, and I detest swimming even under the best of circumstances. Of course, as a mathematician, I mourned the lost knowledge, the proofs that would go unproved. Needless to say, do you get my point? No. I worked beside him for years folly. I believed that Morgan, though my enemy, was my kindred spirit. He could crush the lives of thousands, millions, if the numbers did not add up. But now I have learned that he would risk everything. His own fortune, the economic stability of the United States of America, and perhaps the, also the entire world, to see this dim, sorry, pretty girl again. Just one more time. <laughs> to feel the touch of her bare skin against his for the first time, for the only time. This is a man who can have as many beautiful naked girls in his bed each night as he can handle at once or in combinations of which I've never dreamed. And, to make matters worse, by all reliable reports, he does. The fat eximus whale. Yet for this, for her, a woman who couldn't learn the first thing about monopolies or international currency trading, Mr. J. Pierpont Morgan would sell the moon for a love that has come about for no logical reason. A love that defiles the laws of mathematics. Silly, fragile, pretty little girl. Alan. He is a numbers man by circumstance. Not by inclination. And it makes me hate the fat bastard even more. 
I hate you, you soft-hearted, love-struck buffoon! John goddamn Pierpoint Morgan! Mr. Foley! Mr. Jerome! Yes, my dear. Come closer and speak with us if you wish. I remember who I am when I heard the name. I am Mrs. John Pierpont Morgan. Pierpont was my loving husband. He cared tenderly for me in the sunshine of the Cote d'Azur when I had expired. Oh, I remember everything now. The sickness that drained my body. Pierpont's love, so bottomless that he would marry a woman doomed to die within the year, and in all likelihood much, much sooner. Memories are flooding my mind. Don't overexcite yourself, Miss Sturgis, dear. I remember the ocean voyage to a warmer land, how Pierpont sat at my bedside throughout the night, holding my hand, fighting against sleep. I remember... How could I remember this? Pierpont's face, the way his face looked, just at the moment when life slipped from my body. And I... I spun out of control, a, a dizzying whirl about the room and through the blue waters and green valleys of a foreign land, and... and then nothing. Darkness. Distantly, I heard the wail of my husband's anguished sobs. Well, that's certainly an interesting phenomenon. I is he here? Is he here in heaven with me? May I see him? He's a busy man. You know Mr. Morgan better than I. Always a project. And that never stops, not even in heaven. Railroads and all that. We'll try to find a free appointment on his calendar. My colleague, Alan Jerome, yanked his arm away with such force that the startled Mimi stumbled into the opposite wall and sank to the floor. Alan Jerome strode briskly down the hallway, heading toward the distant patch of sunlight that marked the courtyard. Her shadow against the marble wall had disappeared, and, supine, sprawled across the floor. She resembled more a wisp of mist than a young woman. Her breathing labored, cleaving again to the world through force of will. She held out one long, transparent hand in his direction. I hurried to catch up with them. Oh, for Christ's sakes. What do you want? Alan, save her! In a moment, she will be gone to some other world, to a glorious afterlife. Or perhaps nowhere. Perhaps snuffled out in some dark oblivion. <laughs> Against the Glare of Darkness by Mark Laporta is the gripping science fiction trilogy that critics have called an engrossing far-future reality of galaxy-spanning civilization. 
that combines the best of space opera and science fiction. Read Probability Shadow, Entropy Refraction, and coming soon, Infinity Afterglow, the exciting series conclusion. Get your copy today at your local bookstore or wherever books are sold. In J.P. Morgan's mansion, the great man jerked into consciousness, as though awakened by his late wife's desperate pleas a thousand miles to the east. <gasps> his current wife, the one he had never loved, Frances Louisa Tracy Morgan, Fanny to her friends, lay beside him, snoring, obstinate even in sleep. I feel you here. Somehow. Mimi, are you near at hand? Here in the room, watching me. Disapproving. Mimi. <sighs> Can't sleep. Have to leave. Driver, driver, are you there? <sighs> oh, there, horizontal, across the floor, a bottle of scotch in his hand. Is that house scotch? Uh, I won't tell on you, old man. Looks as though I'm driving myself this evening. Ah, here we are. Pre-dawn Greenwich Village. What brings you here at three in the morning? <laughs> I read the notices of Saturday's performance. I wanted to pay my respects to the new toast of New York. Your toast considers respects fully paid. The Railroad King's mistress was a woman named Georgina de Louvre, or at least that's what she claimed, and in 1875 she was briefly a hit in the musical theater. She was 23, I guess, dimpled, charming, lithe, with a manner that was almost innocent. I met her some years later, after her affair with Morgan had waned, but not her strange enthusiasm for life. She told me stories about him. Things that I probably didn't want to know, but which served me well now in understanding him. For a very obvious reason, he fell for an actress, a good actress, and a beautiful young woman with a pure white face. A girl who could be another girl. Put your hair in a bun. Smile more subtly, not so deeply. Cast a, uh, let's say, a timorous glance downward when you laugh. Speak more gently and behave as though... You feel shyly attracted to me, but as though you are almost afraid to show it, like a young woman in love. In love for the first time with a young man. He told her what she should feel in her heart, how her mind should work, the things that must interest her and the things that must not. And when the portrait and the performance were both complete... The most powerful man in the world settled comfortably and restfully into her arms in her little flat on the third floor of a rickety old wood-framed Greenwich Village house. 
What are you doing? Why are you standing by that mirror? Come back to bed. <clears throat> Straightening my jacket. I look like a gigantic ham stuffed into a beautifully tailored potato sack. You know, I was once a handsome man. You are still a handsome man. <laughs> In your own way. Would you love me if I were not rich and powerful? Of course. Who says I love you, anyway? <laughs> Point taken. Sit down, my dear. Here on the bed. That's right. <sighs> Scotch, please. Yes, sir. When Mimi died, we were in the Villa St. George, in Nice, at the top of a beautiful stone-walled street with a view of the Alps. You should find a rich man to take you there some day, Georgina. Not me, for obvious reasons. The Paris doctor said she had tuberculosis, prescribed turpentine pellets, cod liver oil, donkey's milk, and warm weather. We traveled first to the Hotel de la Regence in Algiers, but the consumption galloped through her body like a wild horse from her left lung to her right. We went to the Riviera. She liked it there as much as she could enjoy anything in those... Terrible, precious days, I suppose. Take my hand, dear. That's good. Tell me about it. On the day of her death, we'd been married four months and ten days. I listened to him tell this story, which I had never heard before. His eyes were glassy and brittle. Two muddy, frozen puddles. At our wedding, she wore a veil, so that the guests could not see how thin and pale she had become. She almost refused to marry me on account of her illness, but I was convinced that my love could cure her. If not my love, then perhaps my money, which could buy her Paris doctors. The doctors recommended we not consummate our marriage until Mimi recovered. She never recovered. Hence, a marriage devoid of physical Love, but not devoid of love. On February 17th, 1862, I saw her breathe her last breath. I begged her, say one more word to me just to hear her voice again. I would have given my entire fortune. I would still render myself penniless just to see her again, even just for a moment. Hm. Maybe I will at that. Some people think that you're a mean old bastard, without any heart at all. Then I will be a pauper. I will have no one. Not you, not Fanny, not the cheers of millions. Some people say they can bring the dead back to life. Just for a while. For a hug, a kiss, a long-delayed honeymoon night. That's all. Some people make that claim. That's all. Here I am, so weak and hopeless and without 
power. How might Alan Jerome see his old boss now as the mightiest man on earth? The way the press, Wall Street's financial institutions, and the average apple seller on the street view me and my growing tentacle-like influence. I know the answer. I am human. I was unable, with all my millions, to save the woman I loved more than anything on the earth, and I, too, will die. <laughs> Alan Jerome pitied me, a pity that bordered on contempt. How do Jerome and Foley and the red eyebrows do the things they do? Money can buy anything, eh, Georgina? If it cannot buy this, then what would it be good for? Georgina. <clears throat> Georgina, are you awake? <sighs> You're asleep. And I am alone in the dark. This program starred Sal Rendino as Watto Hugh and featured Emily Dalton, Jordan Gwizdowski, Morrison James, Arnold Kim, Annie Mack, Anthony Tether, Mabel Thomas, and Eric Yang. Theme song and incidental music composed by Derek K. Miller, with additional incidental music by Danielle Wu. The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Watto Hugh was produced by Danielle Wu.